right. What a beautiful way to start today. Can you look at someone and say, you are beautiful. Can you do that? Look at someone and say, you're beautiful. Right. Welcome, uh, welcome in. If you uh, came in after our initial greeting, I want to thank you for being here. We're in the second week of a, of a nine-week series dealing with the emotional health and the emotional maturity uh, within our own souls that leads us to spiritual maturity. Uh, our presider, Kenny, was talking about how he had taken an uh, emotional health assessment. Uh, hopefully, you did that. Did anyone else do that? Anyone else do that? Okay. Um, a few of us. Okay, excellent. Uh, I don't know what you got. Maybe uh, I, I've had some really good conversations with people in light of what we talked about last week. And maybe as you took that assessment, it kind of confirmed your suspicions that you're not as emotionally mature as you are physically mature. And that made you a little bit sad, made you want to throw uh, your <laughs> exam across the room like Kenny. Uh, I don't know if you're anything like that. Um, but what I want to do today in order to kind of get us on the same page, for the sake of those who you're new today, you have no idea what's going on, uh, but to help you kind of be a little bit self-aware of where you are, but also for the sake of those who maybe you took this test and you've, you realize, I, I spoke with someone who got emotional infant this week, and they were really, really upset about that. And they wonder why they're an emotional infant. I'm just kidding. But... Maybe you got your test back and you got really angry and you threw your computer across the room and you said, no, this is broken and messed up and you didn't get to read uh, the description of your emotional life stage. What I want to do is I want to go rather quickly, but I want to read from Peter Scazzaro what he describes, uh, how he describes each of these levels of emotional health and these different stages. I think it's going to be up here, maybe, but if it's not... If it's not, then you can listen, okay? I'm going to go pretty quickly through this because this isn't obviously the crux of it. Um, if it's not up there, um, even if it is, it might be good for you just to listen, okay? Four stages, infant, child, adolescent, adult, right? And there was a suggestion today uh, at, at our prayer meeting. One of our brothers, uh, David Fong, said, why don't we, can you have a sit in uh, seats according to our emotional age? <laughs> that would be awesome for all the infants over here. And Just kidding. But... Here we go. Emotional infants. I look for other people to take care of me emotionally and spiritually. I often have difficulty in describing and experiencing my feelings in healthy ways and rarely enter the emotional world of This is like my kids. Uh, emotional world of others. I'm consistently driven by a need for instant gratification, often using others as objects to meet my needs. People sometimes perceive me as inconsiderate and insensitive. I'm uncomfortable with silence or being alone. When trials, hardship, or difficulties come, I want to quit God and the Christian life. I sometimes experience God at church and when I'm with other Christians, but rarely when I am at work or home. Does that describe anyone here? Emotional children. When life is going my way, I am content. However, as soon as disappointment or stress enter the picture, I quickly unravel inside. 
I often take things personally, interpreting disagreements or criticism as a personal offense. When I don't get my way, I often complain, throw an emotional tantrum, withdraw, manipulate, drag my feet, become sarcastic, or take revenge. I often end up living off the spirituality of other people because I'm so overloaded and distracted. My prayer life is primarily talking to God, telling Him what to do and how to fix my problems. Prayer is a duty, not a delight. Emotional adolescence. This is Kenny. I don't like it when others question me. This is many of us. It's not just him. I often make quick judgments and interpretations of people's behavior. I withhold forgiveness to those who sin against me, avoiding or cutting them off when they do something to hurt me. I subconsciously keep records of the lo- on the love I give out. I have trouble really listening to another person's pain, disappointments, or needs without becoming preoccupied with myself. I sometimes find myself too busy to spend adequate time nourishing my spiritual life. I attend church and serve others, but enjoy few delights in Christ. My Christian life is still primarily about doing, not being with Him. Prayer continues to be mostly me talking with little silent solitude or listening to God. I would imagine that many of us are in this place of adolescence. And here's the last stage, emotional adults. I was thinking about this. I could think the only person I know that's like this is Jesus. But emotional adults, I respect and love others without having to change them or becoming judgmental. I value people for who they are, not for what they can give me or how they behave. I take responsibility for my own thoughts, feelings, goals, and actions. I can state my own beliefs and values to those who disagree with me without becoming adversarial. I'm able to accurately self-assess my limits, strengths, and weaknesses. I'm deeply convinced that I'm absolutely loved by Christ, and as a result, do not look to others to tell me I am okay. I'm able to integrate doing for God and being with Him, Mary and Martha, My Christian life has moved beyond simply serving Christ to loving Him and enjoying communion with Him. So where are you today? As you think about the person sitting next to you, how many of you would say, my friend is an emotional infant? Okay, let's not do that. Oh, someone raised their hand. Oh, my gosh. That was a trick. Okay, okay. no matter where we are, okay, regardless of where we are, the, here's the whole, and some of you may be really bummed out and discouraged by this, we're, we're on a journey, and can I tell you that we're going to work towards maturity. That's our aim. Wherever you are right now, the aim is that we would grow to become more and more emotionally healthy, emotionally mature, in order that we might have more of ourselves to give to God and to give to others. We're going to begin this journey. Actually, we started last week, but what I'm doing these first couple weeks is I'm doing like pre-op, pre-surgery preparation, and then next week we're going to start going into it to really cut deep and, well, I don't want to say it like that, then you might not come, but to go, go below the surface in order that we can really see what's going on so that we can take steps towards becoming the emotionally healthy, mature adult that God has created and called and saved us to be. Today, what I want to do is continue to paint the picture. Last week, we talked a lot of of theoretical stuff about emotional health and how um, we can't grow spiritually mature if we remain emotionally immature. And we're going to look at an example of a person, a real-life person who lived uh, several thousand, 3,000 years ago named Saul. And as we look at the life of this first king of Israel, we're going to see how his emotional unhealth and immaturity wrecked his life 
and the lives of those he loved around him. It's going to come from 1 Samuel 15, but I want to kind of set this up by explaining what happened. The first king of Israel was King Saul, and God told him, Listen, Saul, for all these years, there's been this group of people called the Amalekites. If they're familiar to you, it's because these were the people who were responsible for trying to exterminate the Jews in the book of Esther, the Amalekites. And this scene here in 1 Samuel 15 is the reason why the book of Esther had that massive conflict, that genocidal fear in the heart of the people of God because of what Saul does not do properly here. God says, look, these people, the Amalekites, are vicious evil, they kill innocent people, they do awful things, and not only that, but they become the bane of your existence, and they cause you to stumble, they cause you to continue to do things you ought not to do. And so he says, I want you to be the rod of my justice in the lives of the Amalekites by wiping them out so that no longer would injustice take place. If you have questions about that and holy war and just war and all that stuff, you can go back to our series in Esther and towards the back end of it where we talk about the, justif- the biblical justification for this kind of, of war and what calls that God calls them to do. But what we have to understand is that God's call to Saul is, hey, when you fight the Amalekites, I want you to defeat them and I want you to destroy them and I want you to wipe everything of them out of the earth so that they do not continue to rise up and try and invoke uh, and try and bring about injustice and kill people unjustly. I want you to completely wipe them out. And so Saul says, all right, I'm going to do that. And so here's what Saul does. He leads his people in the war against the Amalekites. They defeat the Amalekites. They kill the Amalekites. But instead of completely wiping them out, as God said to do, what he does is he takes some of their cattle, their sheep, their goats, their animals, the best stuff, and he keeps it for himself. Not only that, he takes the king of the Amalekites, a man named King Agag, the ancestor to the Agagites, who would torment the Jews in the book of Esther, and he keeps the king, and he keeps him alive for himself. And so, though he defeated the Amalekites, he did not wipe them out. And so, here's what God says about that. 1 Samuel 15, we're going to read starting in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, who was the prophet in Israel at the time, the spokesperson for God. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel the prophet was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, King Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, oh, that stuff. Well, the soldiers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle. Oh, but, but here's why. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you. What the Lord said to me last night, tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small 
in your own eyes? Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But, but, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers are the ones. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, So Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is God's word. This is God's word. Oh, man. Powerful, challenging, convicting. Because of what Saul did here, generations later... In the midst of the Persian Empire, the people of God would be brought to the very brink of extermination had it not been for the faith and the courage of one woman, Esther, and the Israelites who stood behind her. How does our emotionally immature spirituality, our emotionally broken spirituality affect the lives of other people? Well, we see that it does, and we will see how it does. But today, I want to talk about what maturity looks like on the flip side of this, the things that Saul did not do and the things that God is calling us to do. Three thoughts. Here's the first thing. Mature people, okay, mature people live honestly instead of playing pretend. How many of us in here, as we come into worship this Sunday morning, we're playing pretend with ourselves, with other people, with God, with the people in our house church, with our community? See, when you walk around, if you've lived in Orlando long enough, you will go to, I don't know where you'll go, you, um, you'll go to, to Disney World for sure, and you'll see a bunch of little princesses walking around because they're playing pretend as they wear their Elsa outfit or their Cinderella or their Snow White or whatever outfit it is that they wear. They play pretend because that's what kids do. You see them sometimes at Target. We, we had a meeting last night for our house church shepherds, and there was a little Princess Elsa walked in, and she was like three feet tall, and she walked in. I was like, oh, that's so cute. That's so beautiful. She's playing pretend because that's what kids do. They would rather be in this moment in time. I would rather be a princess that I'm not than the normal person that I am. And they grow out of that, you would hope. Imagine you start a new job, right? You start a new job and you're being introduced by HR to all the people in the department and they're going around saying, hey, this is, this is Olivia, this is Jeannie, this is Janet, this is Nathan, this is Hi, these are all the people. And then there's this lady who's dressed up like Mulan. <laughs> and you're like, oh, you know, a little bit late for Chinese New Year, but hey, it's good to meet you. What's your name? And she says, my name is Fa Mulan, right? interesting, Mulan. Nice to meet you. And then you walk, as you're walking away with the HR manager, like, how come she calls herself Mulan? Oh, she really thinks she's Mulan. Her real name is Jasmine, or her real name is Annette, or whatever her real name is, but she always introduces herself as Mulan. 
oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but she doesn't wear that outfit every day, does she? Oh, she wears it every day. She's got a different set of Mulan attire that she wears every day. Tomorrow, you'll see. You walk in the next day, and you're like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, Mulan is at your service. And you're like, what, what is wrong with you? Like, something is wrong with you. What's wrong with, I'll tell you what's wrong. I, if I can, as a psych major, uh, I can psychoanalyze. Here's what I would say. This 50-year-old lady, okay, this is not funny either. I was really a psych major. This 50-year-old lady is emotionally stuck in a stage of life where she wanted to become a princess. Something happened in her life at that point. And so though she's grown up, she hasn't grown mature because she's emotionally stuck in a prior period of her existence. That's her deal. She's playing pretend. It's cute for kids. It's right for kids. It's normal for kids. It's abnormal for adults to be playing pretend. And so you see King Saul here, emotionally infantile, playing pretend. God says, hey, here's your deal. Saul, here's what, here's what you're supposed to do. I want you to fight the Amalekites. I want you to beat them. Not only defeat them, but you got to destroy them so that nothing of them is left, nothing of their culture, their people that would rise up to ensnare you. Saul says, I'm going to do that. He doesn't do it. And look at what happens. Look at God's response in verse, uh, in verse 10, uh, verse 11. The Lord says, I am grieved that I've made Saul king. So God is grieved over it. How does Samuel the prophet respond? Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel is grieved. He is jacked up over it. How does Saul respond? It says in verse 12 and verse 13, Saul builds a monument in his own honor, hailing the greatness of who he is. <laughs> That's crazy. And then when Samuel goes to call him out on it, verse 13, Saul says, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Either he's playing pretend or he's just completely unaware. He does, Samuel doesn't ask him anything. Samuel's just starting to walk up and he just runs up to him and almost preemptively, I did everything that God said to do. And Samuel says, hey, hey, but you know what? Why do I hear sheep in my ears? And why do I hear cattle lowing in the field? What, what are these noises? And then he says in verse 15, Saul said, oh, though, I did my part. It's the soldiers. Those dang soldiers. Forget the fact that I'm the king. I am the chief of the army. Forget all of that stuff. It was the soldiers. They wanted to do it. It was the soldiers, was it? But, 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 but here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let me tell you, Sam, just wait, right? Don't, don't jump to conclusion. The reason we kept them was so that we could sacrifice them so we can worship God. Here's Saul. He's playing the part really well. He's playing the part really well because he's talking a really good game when it comes to worship, but his heart is far from God. You know, we can be very close to the church and be far from Christ. We can advance in years while not advancing in our maturity. And a lot of times, the way that we know our immaturity is because we're playing pretend. As you come to worship this morning, can I ask you again, where is your heart when the music fades and all is stripped away and God looks at you, who are you when God sees, because the reality is that many of us throw on 
these masks so that we can play pretend because for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we want to be somebody that we're not. And so we deny the reality of who we are. This week I was watching this video. I don't, I'm not sure why I, I wanted to watch this, but um, do you guys know the old Mission Impossible movies? Right? Mission, they're not, some of them are not that old. But Mission Impossible, like they, they started coming out like decades ago. But um, every show, every movie is the exact same. There's a mission, should you choose to accept it, that is impossible. But at the end, it, it can get solved because you, you do a great job. But at the end of every Mission Impossible movie or in the middle of every Mission Impossible movie, there's somebody who you know is somebody, but then you realize that they're not that person. And the way that you tell is that they rip off their mask. And you're like, oh my gosh, that guy was an old man, but when he takes off his mask, it's Tom Cruise. Or, oh my gosh, that's Tom Cruise, but when he takes off the mask, it's some old dude. Or, oh my gosh, that's like some dude, and take it off as some woman. Like, what the heck? It's all about wearing these masks. So there's this YouTube video, it's about eight minutes long, with all of the mask-ripping scenes throughout all of the Mission Impossible movies. So, like, every 10 seconds, like, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Again, I don't know why I wanted to watch this, but we were in the bathroom of our bedroom, and um, Olive, uh, Olive was doing something else, but I was showing the kids. I was like, Manny, our 10-year-old, Elijah, seven, and Elise, our five-year-old. I was like, guys, come watch this. Like, this is really fun. And so, dun, 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 watching this, this videos, And then at the end, it's like, and you're like, oh, my gosh. And Manny and Elijah are, like, laughing. They're like, oh, my gosh. They, like, totally fooled us. They look like a real person. And so it's like every 10 seconds, like someone taking off their mask. It's craziness. But I, after, like, the third or fourth person, this goes on for eight minutes, I could see our five-year-old Elise. She's starting to starting to feel a little bit uneasy about all of this. She's beginning to feel a little bit strange, and she's beginning to question reality, and she begins to, like, give side eye to Manny and Elijah, and she's, in her mind, she's thinking, are they wearing masks also? Like, everyone is doing it, right? Oh, my gosh, but they look so real, they're completely fooled. And so she's, like, having this massive existential identity crisis, like, what is going on? And she's, like, looking around. And so after a minute, I stopped the video. Manny and Elijah are like, ah, Elijah, there's a Manny. They're walking out of the bathroom. And then I'm watching, because I'm, like, twice as tall as Elise. I'm kind of watching her, and she's still perplexed and confused. And as she's thinking she's alone, no one's watching, I saw her grab her face like this, (laughs) wondering if she's wearing a mask also. It's not awe. That wasn't the purpose of this. But it's to say that we don't know sometimes if we are wearing a mask or not. I had lunch with someone this week, and we're talking about and debriefing this sermon in his heart. And he said, you know, Dia, one of the things that that confounds me is I didn't realize so many people have issues. I said, yeah, we have issues because we're (laughs) we're all wearing masks. You remember the picture, 10% is above the surface. That's what we see. But 90% lies below the surface. That's the stuff that people don't see. And quite frankly, the reality for the great majority of us is that we're a lot more focused on the 10% that we present to people than the 90% that we present before God. Can I tell you how I know? Let, let, let me just break this down a little bit for you. For those of you who came late to worship service today, nothing, I, I'm not going to judge you. I don't know who you are. 
But for those of you who came late to worship service, can I tell you this? The reason you came late was not because, oh, this morning I woke up and I was jamming out in worship and just praising God and getting my heart ready. I was praying and I lost track of time. And so by the time I knew it, I was late and, and I walked in like five minutes late. That's not why you were late for worship service. I'm almost positive. Maybe one or two of you. Maybe Olive. But for the rest of us, maybe not. Isn't it true that if we were late, the, the, the more plausible reason and maybe not the reason, maybe there's traffic or you had to, you know, got a flat tire, you had to stop by 7-Eleven, whatever it was. But the more plausible reason than you getting your heart ready for worship is because oh, I hate the Florida humidity. It rained all day yesterday. My hair is frizzy and it's crazy. You're having a bad hair day and you're fighting with your hair because you're more concerned about how you look on the outside than how you look on the inside. Anyone like that? Any of your spouses like that today? Or because you couldn't figure, oh my gosh, the weather tricked us again. Florida's playing games on us. Why is it so cold? And you couldn't find anything to wear. And so you're like scrounging around and you're ironing clothes that were not ironed before because you want to look good on the outside, not on the inside. Because we care a lot more about the 90% above the surface than we do about the, I'm sorry, the 10% above the surface than the 90% that resides beneath. That's why we try to curate such a perfect image on Instagram. That's why the filters that we have with hearts or birdies or whatever animals strategically placed to cover up that spaghetti stain on our shirt or the hair that's gone out of kilter. We curate these images in order that people might see the best parts of us. On photo shoots, we don't often put outtakes as the main picture we might say here are some funny outtakes and give that disclaimer so everyone knows these are ones to not take seriously but we don't show those real things as the real things because we're a whole lot more concerned about the 10 percent that we show to people than the 90 percent that lies beneath if we're honest a lot of us are playing pretend and though the assessment might say we're one thing the reality is that there's deep places of emotional childhood and infancy within many of us. This was Saul. He was playing pretend. And when he gets called out by it, look at, why does he do that? Why does he play this way? Verse 12, it says, he sets up a monument in his own honor. And then you go down to verse 24. Saul says, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command in your instructions. He says, I was afraid of the people. Even though he was the king, the most respected person in the nation, he still cared a whole lot more about what people said than about what God said. And if we're living to please the people instead of living to please God, then we'll never allow God to touch the 90% that really brings about the maturity that God is seeking from our hearts. Are you playing pretend in your spiritual life? When you go to house church, when you talk to your friends, does the answer always, I'm doing well, everything is going great, that relationship is going fine, yeah, I'm living in godliness and holiness, I'm keeping up with my Bible reading, yeah, all, or, or are we willing to take off the masks and be real with God, to be real with others? to be real with ourselves because it's a whole lot easier. Can I tell you, it's a whole lot easier to look on, on the outside, to be good from afar while not really being good at all. First thought, 
Okay, first thought, mature people. Okay, we don't play pretend. You don't play pretend. We seek to live out an honest life. The second thing that we see, here's what mature people do. Obey wholeheartedly. Okay, obey completely, not half-heartedly. Okay, we obey completely, not half-heartedly. God says, here's your mission. Obliterate, wipe them out completely so that they don't keep tripping you up. He says, we did it all. We did it all. But did he really? For whatever reason, God was saying, hey, I'm not telling you to, 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 to win this battle, defeat the Amalekites for the sake of your wealth, for the sake of your power, for the sake of your GDP. It's not about that. It's about being my rod of justice. That's why you need to do this. But Saul says, hey, uh, we're, we're just going to go ahead and kill them, but we're going to keep the king and keep their plunder. They obeyed God, even to the point where he could say, yeah, we, we, we won the battle for you. But he didn't obey completely. He obeyed half heartedly because there was still something else that mattered more than what God told him to do. You see this often, don't you? Like, we, we do this a lot. When I talk to people, hey, you know, how's, a, how's it going? Yeah, you know what, I want to talk to you, DL, about this relationship that I'm having. I know um, I'm only in, in middle school, and so my Sunday school teacher told me that I shouldn't, I shouldn't date this person. I shouldn't be in a relationship. Uh, my mom said the same thing. People have been praying for me, and my friends at church told me the same thing. And so um, I just wanted to get your advice. Well, I think if everyone else who's, who's your spiritual advisor says you should not be in a relationship, then you probably shouldn't be in a relationship. Oh, okay, okay, thank you very much. Whether it's a middle schooler, whether it's like 20-somethings, whether it's teenagers, college students who are in a relationship and everybody tells them that they ought not to be because it, it, they're not emotionally ready, they're not spiritually ready, they're not whatever ready. It's just not a good relationship and you're struggling and falling into sin. And people say, hey, you should, you should break up. A couple weeks later, come back, hey, uh, Hey, wanted to uh, tell you that everything's going well. Oh, good, good, good. So what's going on? Yeah, we, we broke up. Oh, man, that's tough. Must have been really hard. I think you did the right thing, but must have been hard. Yeah, it was really, really hard, really hard. How are you dealing with it? Well, it's not, it's not that bad because, you know, we, we still talk. And we still hang out. And we still go out to eat. We still chat 24 hours a day. We still do all of these things. Like, but but, but what, what is it that, that changed? Oh, we're just, on Facebook, we're not, we're not dating anymore. Or we told everyone that we're not together anymore. We did what you, Ted, said we ought to do. We did what our teachers told us we ought to do. You broke up, but your heart was not in it. You're doing the exact same thing that you've been doing. There's no change. It's easy for us to do that, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, hey, you know what? I'm going on this Daniel Fest. I'm going to delete all my social media apps from my phone, and I'm not going to be distracted by my cell phone. And then as you begin the Daniel Fest, you go and you ask your friends at school, hey, let me borrow your phone. I want to check my Instagram feed. That's not the same. To say that you obeyed, but then you don't do it with all of your heart, that's not what God desires from us, Right? Hey, yeah, you know, uh, as we go through this Daniel fast, I'm giving up all media. I know how much of a snare uh, Netflix is or, or, oh, man, I watch too much of these videos and these memes and these YouTube videos are killing me and I waste all my time. So for Daniel fast, I'm going to give up everything that doesn't relate to my work or doesn't relate to my school. And so you're hanging out at Starbucks, and, and sometimes I, when I do work at some coffee shop, I'll see some of our people, and, and especially our, our, our young people, they don't like seeing me sometimes, and like, hey, what's going on? And, and they're like, oh, hey, and they, they, they quickly like shift to a different browser, shift to a different window on their computer. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. I'm just um, doing my homework, 
what's that noise? Like, where's that coming from? Oh, it's just some video. I don't know how that started playing. Let's see what you're watching. Oh, it's this movie. Oh, I thought you were going through the Daniel Fest and giving up that. Oh, you know what? Yeah, but this is, this is like school-related because I'm doing research, right, on um, like Korean dramas and their effect on... Or, or, or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's, hey, you know what? I'm so stressed out, and, and watching this for like three hours a day really lowers my stress level. So watching this is actually part of the Daniel Fast so I can be a better student. My mom's going to be really happy about this. Like we do these things where we obey, but we don't obey completely. What keeps you from obeying only in the 10% but not getting below the surface? Here's what Samuel said. He says he's really like... I mean, these are poetic, amazing words in verse uh, 22. It says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. It says to obey. That's what I want. I want your obedience, not your sacrifice. God, you can give your 21 days. That's fine. But some of us give our 21 days so that the rest of the 344 days we can do whatever we want to do. God, I'll give you my 10% of my tithe, of my, of my income. Just let me do whatever I want with my time. God says, I don't want your sacrifice. I want your obedience. God, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you this two-week mission trip. Man, I'm taking two weeks of vacation time out, God. I'm, I'm skipping all of this work, so I'm going to go and I'm going to do this for you, God. I'm doing this for you, God, but, but please let me just do whatever I want with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. He says, no, I'd rather, I want your obedience, not your sacrifice. And a lot of us are giving our sacrifice as a way of trying to buy our way out of our obedience. Because the approval of people matters too much because our own desires overtake our desire for God, whatever it is. Think about this. Think about you're, you're a mother and you're a stay-at-home mom and you've got five kids. You've got five kids and your birthday's coming up in three months. And so your kids, five of them, all of them, are, they're, they're like quintuplets and they're like five years old. And so they say, hey, mom, what would you, what would you like for your birthday? And mom is kind of mom who has everything that they need. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. I don't want anything. Here, you know what? If you want to give me a birthday present, here's what you can give to me. Here's what you can give to me. Don't, um, don't give me, give me a good attitude. Have a good attitude when I talk to you. That would be awesome. Don't fight with each other. Right? Uh, don't roll your eyes at me. Right? Don't argue with each other. Uh, don't complain when you have to do things. That would, that would be the greatest. I don't need anything else. I've got five automobiles, I've got all the money. I don't need any of that. I don't, I don't, I don't need it. I just, want you to, I just want you to obey me. The kids are like, oh, oh, mom, you're so difficult, blah, blah, blah. They go off. And over the next three months, they are wreaking havoc in the home. Like, they are like the spawn of the devil, like going crazy. Everything that mom said to do, they don't do. They give her attitude when she says something. They complain. They fight. They give inside. They roll in their eyes. All of this stuff, everything. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I don't think I'm going to make it to my birthday. I'm going to die before I get to my birthday. I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm, I'm just, everything is terrible. I want to I return the kids and get new ones. And she's just had it. Birthday comes. Kids wake up. They're like, mom, mom, 
all the money we had, we saved it up, and we bought you a present. And they're like, go outside and look. And in our car filled with five driveways, there's another brand new car that these five-year-old, five, five-year-old kids have saved up their money, and they bought their mom. They're like, mom, here, and they give it to her. And they're arguing, and they're complaining, and they're fighting. Man, we gave so much money to this, and we had to give up so much, and we worked all our chores. We're going to buy a Nintendo Switch with this money. We're going to go to Disneyland and all Disney World, all this stuff. And you're like, but here, how much love would that mother feel? Oh, my gosh, another car. I needed another one. This is amazing. I'll go ahead and keep on fighting. Keep on doing whatever you want. Oh, as long as I have this car, that's all I need. Absolutely not. She would say, guys, I love the fact that you did this for me, but I don't love it nearly as much as if you had gotten, done away with the sacrifice and you just given me your obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. God says, I don't need your money. I want your life. I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. As Keith Green said that in a song that was written many years ago. How are we doing in our obedience to God? Not half-hearted, not I did it, God, I did it. Look at all the things that I did while we're festering away on the inside and the termites have eaten away at the foundation of our lives because the 90% has remained untouched by God while the 10% above the surface continues to look as good as ever. How are you doing? To obey is better than sacrifice. That's what Saul didn't get. And it caused him to struggle and it caused him to stumble. How then do we change? The third thing that we see, and we're going to talk for seven weeks about how we change, but I just want to bring this one thought out. Mature people grow mature through personal devotion. You can say through private devotion, not merely through public performance. See, in other words, Saul was doing everything right on the outside. People would say, he's a worshipful king. He's doing what God wanted him to do. He, the animals that he saved, he's sacrificing them in worship to God. On the outer level, he was doing great. He was worshiping God. He was, looked like he was playing the part. But on the inside, God said, through the prophet Samuel, he said, you've given me that, but it hasn't affected the 90% that lies below the surface. I think, you know, we come to worship on every Sunday, 90%, like 10%, we can, we can really be changed. But it begins to sink in a little bit deeper and deeper. But that deep change of the unseen 90% is not going to happen if this is all we're doing. Or if all we're doing is coming to SNF and Sunday or going to Bible study and Sunday or going to house church. There has to be, there has to be time with God, let me, let me explain. I'm not just making this up. I'm not just, hey, this would be a great application. Let me, let me show you here what it says. In verse 20, 22, at the end, the, the verse that we just read, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Did you know that in Hebrew, the language in which the Old Testament was written, there is no Hebrew word for obey. 
what is the word then? Why do they translate it obey? Here's the word. The word, the Hebrew word for obey is more accurately translated to listen or to hear. In other words, here's what Samuel is saying to Saul. Here's what God is saying to each of us. He says, to hear me, to listen to me is better than sacrifice. To hear me is better than sacrifice. And Saul's problem was that he could not hear God. The re- when you cannot hear God, okay, listen, when you cannot hear God, then the voices of other people are going to matter more to you than God's. When you cannot hear God saying, save yourself for marriage, save yourself for the godly partner, save yourself and give yourself fully the person I bring into your life. When God's voice is not heard by you, you'll listen to the voice of countless others who tell you, just go for her, go for him, do this one, just pursue it. You're running out of time. When you don't listen, you don't hear the voice of God, you're going to listen to and hear the voice of others, and it'll be much louder than the voice of love that calls you. To listen, to hear is better than sacrifice. And your problem, Saul, was that you weren't giving me time to hear. You understand this. The implication, if we really hear God, is that we will obey him. That's the implication. This, this, this became reality to me, not with God, but with Mrs. Rugel, my eighth grade English teacher. Eighth grade was a tough year in my life. I don't know why. I think I, just, I was acting out a lot. I got in trouble a lot. My brother, three years older than me, had Mrs. Rugel as his English teacher, and he said, you're going to love her. She's awesome. She's a great teacher. She's so fun. She's so engaging. She'll make you love English. She did all of those things, but for whatever reason, uh, I was a jerk to her. I, I definitely wasn't hearing God's voice at the time. There were friends, and, you know, we would, we would do a lot of things that we ought not do. And I would say probably on average, I don't remember exactly, but I'm going to guess maybe like once a month, she would kick me out of the class. She'd say, David, go, go stand in the hallway. The first time it happened, I was like, oh, like, how long am I supposed to be out here? And then she came out and she talked to me. And then uh, she said, hey, that's not appropriate behavior. I said, all right. And we went back in. And then it, this would happen again. I just repeat these same cycles. And probably like every month, I get thrown out, kicked out. I don't remember how many times this happened, but I remember the last time it happened. Remember the last time it happened, she said, she was, she was livid, whatever it is that I did. She said, David, go out, stand in the hallway. And she made me wait like 10 minutes. It was longer than usual. I was just waiting. And I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. I was supposed to probably think about what I had done. But I wasn't there. I was just thinking, like, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to go to in-school suspension. My parents are going to get called, whatever. I was just sitting out there. And she comes out, and she's like, I am tired of having to do this week in and week out, and she just like went off on me, how I'm disruptive, and I have so much potential, I could be so much more, and I had asked her to write a recommendation for me for ninth grade for Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. I don't know why I asked her. She was the last teacher I should have asked, but one day we're having a, it was a good day. I was being really good. She was calling on me. I was answering her questions. So in that, in that high point on that mountaintop, I said, would you write a recommendation? She's like, sure, I would love to do it. And then she said in that conversation, I had the hardest time writing you a good recommendation. I was like, dang. <laughs> I asked the wrong teacher. And I was there. And she said, I don't ever want this to happen again where you have to come out in the hallway and I have to talk to you. She said, do you hear me? I said, yes. And she said, no, no, no. 
as I was about to walk in, she said, she said, David, look at me, look at me. And she stared at me for like five seconds, seemed like forever. It's like, you know, Asian people don't look each other in the face. It was like forever. And then she, as I, as I looked at her, her face was like shaking. Like she was dead serious. And she was hurt by my actions. And after five seconds, she said, do you hear me? And as I, I said, yes, I do. And we walked back in. And I realized for the first time I was hearing what she was saying. She wasn't asking me, are the echoes and the vibrations of my sound waves reverberating in your ear? That's not what she was saying. She's like, do you hear? Do you hear? Away from the noise of all of your friends who are telling you to do all these things. Away from the noise that tells you you need to play a certain part in order to be accepted. Do you hear me? And if it was a movie, I would say, loud and clear. I heard her, and it changed me because I knew then that she wasn't just saying, listen. She was saying, obey, obey, obey. Saul's problem and the problem with many of us is that we're not able to hear God apart from this kind of a context because we're not giving God the time to speak to us. Because you see, at the end of this passage, it says the Lord Verse 23, he has rejected you as king. And so when you hear that, you read that, immediately you're thinking, then who will, the, who will be the king? And immediately after you ask that question, you read in the next chapter, it says, Samuel anoints David. What Samuel is doing as this book is being written is it's a juxtaposition of the first and second kings of Israel. David, Sam, uh, Saul. You never, you never see Saul spending any time with God. He is so completely oblivious and unaware of anything that's going on either around him or even in his own heart. He's blaming other people. He thinks he's done what's right when deep in his heart. He, he's so divided and playing pretend for so long that he doesn't know the reality of his own heart anymore because he's not stopping to listen to what's going on. On the other hand, you have David, who's constantly with God, writing two-thirds of the Psalms, in touch with his emotions. He's angry. He's sad. He's hurt. He's conflicted. He's bitter. He's scared. He's joyful to the point of running around with his boxers on in celebration of the glory and the goodness of God. David is in touch with his emotions. He understands what's going on in his heart and he's spending time with God. Therefore, the Bible says, here is a man after God's own heart. Committed to working the 90%. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. That's what David did. That's what Saul did not do. And when you think about this, why? What was up? What was going on with Saul? It says in verse 17, although you were once small in your own eyes, 
did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, this is completely passive, Saul. You didn't do anything. You were small in your eyes. You became the king of Israel. How? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission. The Lord did all of these things for you. But here you are trying to set up a monument for yourself. Do you understand what's going on here? Samuel is saying, listen, Saul, you were nothing but God made you great. You were nothing, but God exalted you. Here you are, you've become great in the eyes of God, but here you are building a monument, trying to do all of these things, trying to get the praise of other people. Why are you looking in other people to find what God has already given to you? Why are you trying to do what God has already done? Why are you disobeying him in order to gain something that God's already given to you? Do you see the, just how it doesn't make any sense, the way of the emotionally immature, because we don't see what God is doing, because we don't hear what God is doing. That's why this Daniel fast comes at such a huge time for us, guys, to not just go through the motions of giving up my food and giving up my meat and my sugar and my carbs and all that stuff, but to listen to God. If, you, if we do this, your lives at the 90% could be so deeply transformed. Because you see, in Saul's failure, you would realize that the great king, David, he too would fall for all of his pursuing the heart of God. He would also fail, and he would also fall, and he would do so in colossal ways that impacted his family for generations to come also. The question we're left to ask is, where is our king? Where is the king? who can save us from ourselves? Where's the king who can actually do something to change us? God says there is a king. There is a king. The true king. See, Saul, the reason Saul kept King Agag for himself was to say, hey, you know what? I'm the king over kings. I am the king of kings. But he realized he wasn't. But there was one who is and was. And though he is the king of kings, he became small in the eyes of the world. He became small in his own eyes. He is the one who took off the mask and said, I'm going to live in complete honesty, in complete obedience. And the reward for that obedience was that he would be nailed to a cross in order that we who are nothing could become something in the eyes of God. When that kind of love begins to touch your heart, you begin to see that, and you begin to allow that to sink into the deepest places of our hearts. We say, God, when the music fades, even when it fades, when everything is stripped away, God, I want to give you all. What, what more can I give to you? How much more can I give to you? Oh, is there anything that I can give to you that, that, would, that would be commensurate to all that you... And so we see in Romans 12, he says, therefore, offer your bodies, all of you, as a living sacrifice. That's the acceptable form of worship in light of a God who has done these things for you. That God is our guide as we walk through these next seven weeks. We have many companions who are willing to walk with us, and if we walk this way, it's going to lead us to a place where we get below the surface and God begins to transform us from the inside out. It might not be easy, but it's going to be worth it. It might not be easy, but on the other side of that is where life really lies. Let's pray together.
pray, ask the Lord that he would search our hearts right now and he would show us, Lord, what is it that you're calling me to do in response to this? Maybe some of you have been on the fence about the Daniel fast. You don't want to do it because you love your social media profile too much. You love YouTube too much. You love laughing at and making memes too much. You love that drama that everyone else is going to be talking about before you get to it after the fast is over too much. You love your reputation too much. You love your meat too much. Whatever it is, but maybe if we stop to hear what God is saying. As he invites you to put your hand in his and to walk with him. He says, you have no idea what life could be like but I've got it and I've got it for you in abundance maybe for some of you it's hey I'm going to do the Daniel fast maybe you were going to do a modified fast and God's saying hey just go all the way just go all in just go all in and see what I would do these next three weeks maybe for some of you it's I'm going to get this book and I'm going to I'm going to really start reading it now Maybe it's for some of you, it's, it's a choice you need to make relationally. It's a choice you need to make in, with a friend to be accountable and to say, today I'm going to talk to somebody about this struggle that I've got. I don't want to play pretend. Let's pray for half a minute right now in response, and then we're going to come to this table and receive God's grace. But let's pray for half a minute in that way before we continue on. to you today it's exposed before you having had the inner secrets of our hearts exposed by your word and Father we love the, appraise, the praise of people more than the delight of the Father sometimes we don't believe that we're ch children dearly loved by you Sometimes we need to hear it from other people in order to really believe that we're worth something. And as a result, we've just gone seeking to please people. We've become so busy, unable to say no to people and to things and to responsibilities that, quite frankly, we've just said uh, it's a lost cause trying to spend time with my Father who loves me. Father, in this place where our hearts are laid open, pray that you would capture us with your grace. Tell us that we're loved. Show us that we're loved. Show us that we're accepted and that you love us as much as you love your own son, Jesus. Beloved of God, cherished by God, accepted by God, approved 100% by God because of Christ alone. You rip open the heavens and you say, that's my child. And I'm not afraid, ashamed, unwilling 
to boast that I'm his or her father. That's the love of God that we need to anchor us when we realize, then we realize, I can take off my mask. I'm defined not by my failure, not by my shame, not by my past, but because of the gospel, loved deeply forever, never to be put away, never to be kicked out of the classroom, never to be kicked out of the home, fully embraced by a Father who loves me and will never let me go. Thank you for that love. Now as we respond to that love in worship songs and coming to this table, Lord, may grace overwhelm us again. Thank you so much. We love you because you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.